0: Good morning, everybody. As always, I want to just welcome all of you to Stonebridge Church. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I hope you all have been able to get out sometime this week and enjoy the the good weather that we've had off and on. I know it's rained a ton as well, but there's been some opportunities for us to just enjoy what God has blessed us with in this community. I've talked to a handful of people from the church and from the community and just kind of commiserating together talking about what may looks like for a lot of us and I know it can just be a chaotic month for a lot of people from graduations to t-ball and baseball and soccer and end of school parties and all of the stuff that may brings it can just be craziness for a lot of us with young families and so I just pray that you can just find moments to refresh and recharge in between all of the running Uh, for those of you who maybe new to our church today, or even in the past couple of months, we don't talk about it a lot, but if you look at the bottom of your bulletin, there's, it tears off, and we would love to get to know you all a little bit better, um, help you get connected more at the church, and so you can write your information on that and fold it up and stick it in the offering box as you walk out, and one of us will be in contact with you over the next couple of weeks. For the past four months, we have been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so now we find ourselves in First Corinthians eleven, chapter two, or chapter no, first Corinthians chapter eleven, verses two through sixteen. And as we've worked our way through, we've encountered some some really fun topics, right? First Corinthians has been a blast for some of us. We've looked at really interesting topics like marriage, expectations for intimacy in marriage immorality, divorce, idolatry, glorifying God, just over and over again with just really fun topics to encounter as a congregation. Remember way back. If you haven't already turned to 1 Corinthians 11, please do that, actually. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11. Sorry. Chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. I'll get it right one of these times. Remember way back when, when we started, in the first few verses, I talked about the fact that how Paul starts the book of 1 Corinthians. And he centers on this idea of an atmosphere of grace. He started there because he knew he was going to have to talk about some difficult topics with the Corinthians. So he started off by reminding them who Jesus was, what Jesus had done for them and who they were as followers of Jesus and just telling them I love you all and I although I'm gonna have to correct some stuff this is coming from the heart of a father who loves you. Today will be one of those topics that requires an an extra measure of grace for all of us including especially myself. Let me ask you a question though, before we get started. As you have read the Bible maybe over the past week, over the past couple of years, over maybe over the past 50 years if you have read the Bible, have you ever been confused? <laughs> By a show of hands, who has been confused reading your Bible? If you are not raising your hand, I I want maybe you should probably be up here cuz I am constantly confused while reading through my Bible. But the good news is that we're not alone. Second Peter, starting at, or in chapter 3, starting at verse 15, says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, That are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. This is the Apostle Peter. This is the guy who sat at the very feet of Jesus and receive training on on his teachings, and he's saying some of Paul's teachings are confusing, confusing to even him. So this gives me a ton of hope. If if Paul or if Peter can read Paul's writings and go, "What in the world was he trying to say here?" I can feel that way at times too. Although this does not excuse us when we get to something difficult to just say okay, that was difficult. I don't understand it. I'm just going to ignore that and just move on to something easier to understand. That's when we should start digging deeper and really trying to understand, you know, talking to other Christians that have maybe been walking longer with Christ, reading commentaries, listening to sermons on specific passages to try and understand what is going on in these passages. Today, we are confronted with one of those writings from Paul that just seems confusing. And it's funny because when we put together the first Corinthians preaching schedule way back in November, Matt was actually supposed to preach today. And then about a month ago, we looked at the preaching schedule and he's like, well, that's strange. I plan to preach the week after my baby was supposed to be born. You want it? I was like, oh, <laughs> Sure. But don't worry. He has to deal with prophecy and tongues in a couple of weeks. So All right. Follow along with me as I preach 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting at verse 2. It says, "Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you." But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Right? Yeah. Luckily, though, sometimes when you read Scripture, if you keep reading... It explains itself. So, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now was man, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. There it is. Because of the angels. That's why, right? It all makes, no, okay. We're still not quite there. All right. For as a woman was made for man, so man is also now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. But her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. That's a fun one today, right? Head coverings. Depending on what translation you're reading out of, like that's kind of the the title that a lot of the interpreters gave this section was head coverings. And so we say, well, how in the world? As I look around, I'm like, well, a lot of you are probably sinning if this is what's going on here. How do we interpret a passage on head coverings for our church today? It's strange to us because when we read it, we can instantly do one of two things with a passage like this. We can either bristle at it and say, well, the Bible is irrelevant and doesn't make sense and it doesn't relate to me, so I'm just not going to understand this and just move on. Or we can look at a passage like this and go the extreme far end and demand that all of our women, all of our married women have hair coverings, head bonnets on afterwards, and all of our men to cut their hair short, which is why we here at Stonebridge will be selling Stonebridge brand prayer bonnets in the foyer afterwards and demanding that all men be shaved as they walk out the door. No, I'm kidding. No, no. Like Matt said last week, context is king. And when we say that, yeah, when we're reading through a story, we understand, like, we need to know the context of the whole story. And that's true for the Bible. But we also need to understand the whole context of the culture and everything going on at the time. When we say head coverings, many of us may instantly get a picture in our mind of what that may look like. From Catholic nuns to Amish women to Muslim women, the the types of head coverings out there in this world today make it even more confusing. So when we hear it, we're like, well, what exactly does he mean? We do know for sure that Paul is not referring to something that covers the entire head and face. And I was hoping to read a bunch of commentaries and be able to come in and give you definitively what exactly he's talking about. But six commentaries later, not a single one of them agree on what is he talking about and what the head coverings may look like. So it's like, I, I don't know. Pretty much all the commentaries had a different opinion of what a head covering could look like from just a little bonnet to even just a scarf that gets pulled over the head like a prayer shawl, something, something, but it's something to just cover the head. But the main thing is not what it looks like. The one thing that the commentators did agree on is why. It's not so much what, but why. Why Paul even wants to talk about this idea of head coverings. A woman having her head uncovered in the first century when this was written shows marital availability. And so it's... It's a sign of saying, I, I'm married. It's like our wedding rings nowadays. That's how married women let other people know that they were actually married. So Paul's concern in this passage is not necessarily the relationship between woman and man, but more specifically, the relationship between husband and wife. The head covering was a sign that a woman was married. It was a sign of submission to the authority that God had placed over her head. It's actually very shameful to her husband if a woman walks into the church, a married woman would walk into the church here with her head uncovered. It'd be like any of you married women just taking off your ring when you come into church or anyone, you'd be like, I don't care. I don't care about what the covenant of this ring means. I don't care about what I promised to God in our marriage I'm free in Christ, and that's what the Corinthians were trying to do. The Corinthian women wanted to say, okay, well, now I'm a follower of Jesus, so all these cultural things that have been placed on me, I'm free. I'm free in Christ. I have Christian liberties to do whatever I want. I don't need to conform to these cultural standards anymore. And Paul's saying, no, the the cultural standards still are important because you're letting everyone know that you're unmarried by walking in like this to the church. Now, another issue in Corinth that was going on that kind of coincides with this whole issue that goes with the head coverings is we've talked about the temple prostitutes that were in Corinth. And now, this is, again, just another strange thing back in the day that we don't really understand, but the temple prostitutes would actually shave their heads bald. That way, as you were out in the streets, you would know when you saw one what her profession was. It was a way for her to let people know, this is what I do, and could easily be approached. But praise be to God, the Corinthian believers were witnessing to everyone in the town, and these temple prostitutes were coming to Jesus and and were giving up their profession and coming to church. But The unfortunate part is when you give your life to Christ after shaving your head to announce what your profession is, your hair doesn't just immediately pop back in as you walk into church. So here, these women are walking in with shaved heads. So again, Paul was trying to point to them to say, Hey, cover up your head. That's the whole idea of like shaved heads and having long hair. He's saying, wear this head covering also to give yourself some dignity, That way, when you walk into the church, everyone's like, oh, I know what she used to do. Like, you would have just a little bit of dignity until your hair could grow back. So based off of that, the whole marital availability and cult prostitutes, we can see that the idea of head covering was a a cultural idea going on only in Corinth or in the first century. So we can basically understand that our women today, our wives, do not need to cover their heads in church or in public they can if they want to it's a choice but it's not a command that's meant for us today so that's easy all done right shortest sermon i've ever preached we're done out of here unfortunately not really but if this is a cultural command we have to ask well how can we tell How can we tell when we read through our Bible if a command is cultural and meant for only them or it's timeless and meant for all of history? How do we pick and choose which ones? Well, in order to do that, first we need to understand the culture of the Bible. One of the things that Matt and I have learned in seminary is something called hermeneutics, it's a big, fancy word that just simply means interpreting the Bible. Basically, when we write sermons or, or teach youth group, we, we have this idea called the, the biblical roadmap. And so we, we come into, anytime we, anyone, anyone teaches from the Bible, they need to come into it with this idea of saying, what, what was going on originally? What was going on in the original people's time period when they heard this to the original readers? And then we can look at the context of us now and attempt to understand how this can relate and if it is cultural or timeless. It's this idea of their town versus our town and how to bridge the two together. Now, this can instantly become a very slippery slope when imperfect men in 2018 attempt to interpret God's perfect word written thousands of years ago. Especially when we each come to the Bible with our own lenses on. We read a passage and all of our past experiences and things we've learned and our feelings, we put that in the Bible when we read it. And then it starts to influence how we want to interpret what it means to us. Many times today we hear people saying that something that is in the Bible is not relevant for today, that it's, it's just not cultural. Well, if, if Paul had been around nowadays, he wouldn't have written that to us because that's, that was just for them. They will say that a certain command was written specifically for a certain community of believers or because the culture of the times when the Bible is written. I believe that is true for some commands such as this, but others are not that way. Many times, many of our hot topic issues today fall into this and get lumped into this category of cultural commands. Things like women as pastors, and food restrictions, and homosexuality, and yes, the the command to cover a woman's head. All of these things just get lumped together and said, oh, they're cultural. Some are, some are timeless. The main reason I can stand here and say that a command to cover a woman's head when she prays is cultural and that some of the other ones that we would argue against are not and that they are actually timeless is if that command is repeated or not. That's a big thing. If the commands in scripture are repeated over and over again, this is the only time in the New Testament that it tells women that they need to cover their head. The only passage. And it's something that the Corinthians were specifically dealing with. So I have confidence saying that this command to wear a head covering was not a cultural command. Or it was a cultural command. Whereas some of these other ones that we would argue, they're repeated more often. Now if this is a a cultural writing only for the Corinthians, are there other scripture that are cultural? Other commands in scripture? Short answer, yes, absolutely. Luke 18 through 20, or Luke eighteen twenty two says, when Jesus heard this, he said to them, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Does this mean that all of us need to sell everything that we have, give it all to the poor, forsake family, just to follow Jesus? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Maybe. Some of you, maybe he might be calling you to sell everything and sacrifice everything to follow him. For the vast majority of us, probably not. In this passage, again, context is king. Jesus was speaking to one specific person. And Jesus had the ability to look into his heart and see what was holding him back from following him wholeheartedly thinking back to just a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this idea of idolatry, wealth, inheritance, family. These were the things that this man was making an idol of his life. So Jesus is just essentially saying, you have to be willing to sacrifice everything. That is timeless to us. We have to be willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus. We do not have the time today for me to go through every command in scripture, and explain to you which one is timeless and which one is cultural. But my prayer is that you can learn skills that you can use to determine those ideas. And then, of course, we are here. Matt and I and the elders and your connection group leaders, we are here to help you wrestle through these things when you just don't understand, As we look at the rest of this passage, we can see that there are applications for us today, though. In verses 8-9, through we see Paul's comments about women being created from man. And then again in verse 12, he says it again. What is the purpose of all of a sudden in this passage about head coverings for Paul to throw it back to the created order of humanity? Well, he's pointing towards the created order because he's pointing to how we need to live in authority. Husbands, submit to your wives as they submit to Christ. That's the purpose. But he's also pointing us to a belief called complementarianism. Complementarianism is the teaching that male and female are ordained by God and that women and men are created to complement each other to complete each other. We here at Stonebridge believe that the gender roles found in the Bible are purposeful, and they are meaningful distinctions that God created, man and woman. And that when these are applied to the home and the church, it actually promotes spiritual health of both men and women embracing the godly roles of man and woman furthers the ministry of, of God's people and actually allows men and women to reach their God-given potential. This complementarian view, the reason why Paul points to created orders, because that's where the complementarian view comes from, all the way back from Genesis 1, 26 through 27. It says that God created humanity, male and female, in his own image. And then Genesis 2 eight goes further in detail, and it says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The two genders, male and female, are part of God's created order. And any modern-day blurring of these two genders and distortion of those is a result of sin and the fall. Now, this idea of it is not good for man to be alone, amen to that. I hear that, and I'm like, amen. I don't know about you guys, but I know that there are men, single men, in this world who are thriving and doing well and just killing it as single men. It was not me. (laughs) When I met Andrea, I cooked one meal, chili dogs. When I went to the grocery store, my grocery once a month, when I went to the grocery store, my grocery list consisted of Doritos, hot dogs, buns, can of chili, case of Mountain Dew, case of ramen noodles. Yeah. When she first came to meet me at my apartment, we had a mountain of trash bags sitting in the kitchen because the dumpster that we had to take them to was a block away. And that was just too far. So we would wait until it piled up and then would, as a team, take it all out. I had one pan, right, and one pot. That's it. But when you're only making hot dogs and a can of chili, you don't need much more than that. I was eating out 90% of meals. I was not thriving as a male. So these passages of woman was created to be a helper, and it is not good for man to be alone. I'm like, amen. I know that that is true for me. Complementarianism follows also the Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 passage, and that's the roles of husband and wife in Ephesians, and it is the model for the home. The husband has the role of headship in the family. The role of headship is also throughout this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Verses 3, verses 12 all point to this idea of husbands as the head of the family. A husband is to nurture his wife and lead his family lovingly, humbly, and sacrificially. The wife has the role of nurturing her children and intentionally, willingly submitting to her husband's leadership. When both husband and wife are complementing each other in this way, Jesus is actually honored. And the marriage itself becomes what it was designed to be, a living picture of Christ and the church sacrificing for one another serving one another that's what a marriage should look like that's what it means to complement each other that's what it means to be a helper coming alongside one one another being a good leader being the spiritual leader in a family as a man is about knowing our spouse's gifts and talents When I first became a Christian, I heard about this idea of the husband being the spiritual leader, and it honestly freaked me out. I assumed that it meant that I had to do manly things like fix the car and run the finances. It doesn't mean that. It can, but it doesn't have to. Being a leader is, like I said, about knowing the gifts and talents of each other, about yourself and your wife. And it's about being able to nurture those gifts and talents. It's about letting her thrive as the woman that God created her to be. It doesn't mean that she has to do all the dishes, laundry, and house cleaning. Because let's be honest, I'm a little obsessive, and I actually love doing laundry. Those are my gifts and talents. (laughs) It also doesn't mean that I, as the man have to make the most money because again let's be honest I'm a pastor and she has skills in the medical field that could take her much further that's not what it means to be the spiritual leader it can but it doesn't have to it also doesn't mean that we have to be perfect I got that confronted with me really head on this weekend I feel that, like, as the spiritual leader, I have to be perfect and I can't make mistakes. We often have to preach to ourselves as preachers, and God really slapped me in the face about that idea of trying to be perfect and holy. It's not that, it's about being the first to ask for forgiveness, the first to confess when I have screwed up, because I'm going to every single day. That's what it means to be a leader. Man of God is the description given to a man that follows God in every way, who obeys his commands with joy, who does not live for the things of this world, but for the things of eternity, who willingly serves God and gives freely of his resources. We can see that the, the purpose of the head coverings were and we can start to understand why Paul would bring up the topic of men and women and how they were created. But now we have to ask the question, how does a passage about head coverings in church relate to us today? Well, it doesn't, but yet it does. First, it does relate to us today in that women, wives, still need to live in submission to the authority that God has placed over there in their husband. Now, when I was going through this passage, I really questioned if I wanted to use the word submission. I can mean a very abrasive word in our culture, right? It's, it's something that we don't like hearing, submission. And so I asked Matt, I said, should I, should I soften this a little bit? Should I, should I try and change that, look up a synonym that doesn't seem so abrasive? He reminded me <laughs> that the topic and the word submission comes straight from the Bible. But we also have to, have to understand what the biblical idea of submission is. And when we bristle at that word, it's because we are not thinking of it biblically. It is not domineering or controlling or abusing our power. And Matt gave me just an incredible definition that he had developed. He said, submission is about supporting and respecting your husband's God-given leadership role in your home. And then I found another amazing quote from John Piper, and it says that submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive and I have to make sure that the family works. Then he goes on to say, the attitude of Christian submission also says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. It's a woman saying, you know, I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you, but on the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead. I cannot follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. That's the idea of what biblical Christian submission looks like. Now, I, like I said, I get it. That is difficult for some wives and some women. And there's many different reasons why submission can be difficult. One reason is sin. We live in a sinful world, and God said it was going to be this way. Genesis 3.16 says, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. This is that sinful type of control and submission that we think of. It's controlling and uh, abusing and since the fall and the first sin, God said it was gonna, this was going to be the result. That there would be constant turmoil and a desire to have authority over one another, to usurp each other. God is saying that this will happen within the family structure, but we can honestly see it in every aspect of society. Just turn on the news and it doesn't take long to hear a story about something or someone, and the problem is rooted in the desire to have control. We all just want to control the situation. Now, another reason that it is difficult for some women to live in submission to their husbands is that some some husbands are not submitting to God. That's the Ephesians 5 model. Women submit to your husband as he submits to Christ. It's not just do whatever he demands of you, but as he is following and loving Jesus and leading you to Jesus, you follow him to Jesus. So, does that mean that if a woman, if a husband, or if a wife has a husband who isn't honoring, who isn't following Jesus, she doesn't have to live in submission, right? Unfortunately first Peter three, one through two says, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. This was written to women whose husbands were not believers. And Peter is saying, just by loving Jesus and staying with them, some of them will come to know Jesus. This is my story. And I know many other women who years upon years have loved their non-Christian husband and submitted to him and loved Jesus, hoping that their husbands would come to know Jesus. Now, this does not mean that you submit to all husbands no matter what. If they are abusive or ungodly, if they are not letting you follow Jesus, if they're saying, no, you cannot read your Bible, you cannot go to church, if they are trying to place authority on you that goes against what Scripture is teaching, you do not have to submit to that authority. Now, another reason that this can be a struggle for some women is that some husbands are not being the spiritual leaders in their family. Now, we've already talked about it, what it means to be a spiritual leader, but that is a struggle. When a wife sees a man not leading well, she struggles to follow the lead. I've already explained, like I said, I've already explained it. And so if you didn't quite catch what it means to be a spiritual leader, men, or if this is just something that you struggle with and you need help with, Matt and I would love to meet with you and help you, guide you through what it means to lead well in your families. These passages on head coverings don't relate to us because women don't need to wear head coverings. In today's culture, we no longer view Women's wearing of a head covering as a sign of submission, or a sign of being married, or trying to protect the dignity of what your profession used to be. In most modern societies, scarves and hats are just fashion accessories now. You, as women, have the choice to wear a head covering if you want to. There, there are other church denominations out there who. Their women wear the head coverings as a sign of submission and being married. That's their choice. It's not required. And it doesn't make any of them more spiritual than you women. The real issue here is the the heart attitude of obedience to God's authority and submission to his established order. God is far more concerned with our attitude of submission, every single one of us, mine to Christ as my wife's to me. He is far more concerned with the attitude of submission than some outward display saying that we are married or that we have an authority over our head. I've talked to one person at least who said, yeah, I know people who used to wear head coverings to try and show that they were submitting to their husbands, but they didn't. It was just a show. God is far more concerned about our attitude. This command is a cultural standard written specifically for the Corinthian church. But just like every passage in the Bible, it has implications for us today. Our prayer is that women and men would leave here today with a better understanding of their biblical roles that God has given each and every one of us. And that as couples, you can leave here and start having conversations about what it means to be submissive and to be a leader. And what it means to complement each other. And what it means to be a helper to each other. Now, as always, when we discuss difficult topics, we are here. We are available And we want to help you through this. If you need someone to pray with you or talk, just get in touch with one of us and any of us. And we would love to help you in these areas. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for the cross. Is that, that is why we can come to this and say, God, teach me, lead me. Because of your picture when you, Jesus, willingly submitted to the Father and you gave your life as a ransom for all of us. That is our model. As you submitted to the Father, that we submit to you and we submit to each other. Thank you, God, for this passage and help us to just wrestle with it and change us. In your name I pray. Amen.